Welcome to the Human Climate Podcast. Carol Smaldino is a practicing psychotherapist and author of The Human Climate, Facing the Divisions Inside Us and Between Us. Our tendency is to demonize or to worship blindly, to be arrogant and are covered by shame and doubt. Her restless spirit has provoked a quest for guests who might help her and us to question our assumptions. Carol invites you into the conversations where she herself has wound up taking her own dives into inconvenient territories. I hope you'll join me for a series of unexpected duets. Hello, I'm Carol Smaldino, and welcome to The Human Climate. My guest today is Larry Seams. Larry Seams is the author of Between the Lines, Letters Between Undocumented Mexican and Latin American Immigrants and Their Families and Friends in 1995, The Torture Report, what, what the documents say about America's post 9-11 torture program, and that's 2011. He's the editor of Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Slahi in 2015, and co-author of the actual true story of Ahmed and Zarga with Mohamedou Slahi in 2021. So welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, I'm gonna start by asking you, uh, how did you become interested and compelled by the subject of torture and compelled as I see it to know uh, the truth behind what happened? I think I, I came to this because torture, the story of torture in America is also a censorship story and you know, for many, many years, um, I have done human rights work that's particularly focused on um, freedom of expression, which is, you know, our First Amendment in the United States guarantees the right to freedom of speech and expression. And the, you know, um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights guarantees free expression to every citizen on earth. I worked for an organization called PEN, the International Writers Organization, P-E-N. Um, where we did advocacy on behalf of writers and journalists around the world who were threatened or persecuted for their work. Um, many of them were imprisoned. And um, so that was, you know, and I would, I traveled a lot internationally. I worked with, you know, free expression advocates around the world. Um, many of the writers on whose behalf we were working who were jailed were also tortured. Um, and so, you know, when in, in a post 9-11 world, working for PEN America in New York City, um, you know, like all human rights organizations, I think, in it, that were based in the United States after 9-11, um, when news started to surface of the mistreatment of prisoners, of, you know, of violations of the laws of war, of all of these things, you know, we could, we could see an immediate impact on our effectiveness as international human rights advocates. I mean, within, within weeks, days, I would say even hours of the passage of the USA Patriot Act in September of 2001, there were dictators around the world who were, you know, citing the US anti-terror policies to support their own repressive policies that included massive persecution of um, democratic voices and writers. So, you know, it was very difficult to be an American human rights advocate and not, you know, be aware of what was happening in the United States. And that that awareness was limited by the intensity of the censorship that surrounded, you know, U.S. the U.S. torture program, 
Um, and, and, you know, obviously that was intentional censorship. The censorship existed in order to allow torture to happen. It can't allow, it, it can't happen without censorship, um, theoretically, at least in a democracy, because it's absolutely prohibited by international law, by the Convention Against Torture, which specifically says that you can't, you know, no, no exigency can be cited as a justification for torture. You can't, even a national emergency does not justify the use of torture. Um, so, you know, it, it was it was required the U.S. you know in order to torture had to create these secret spaces, um, and then to carry out the torture. And then secrecy was used both to keep those secrets, and to you know and to continue to hold people who had had no business holding in order to keep them silent. So, you know, that was the, that was the broad outlines of what was happening. We knew that. Um, and we at Penn started to do some work with the ACLU, which had done this enormously successful Freedom of Information Act uh, request that had pried loose over 100,000 pages of documents from the U.S. Department of Defense, from the CIA, from the FBI, um, which was this huge repository of information about prisoner abuse in Guantanamo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And so I worked with them on a project that became the torture report. And in the course of the torture report, the, the, the story of this man, Mohammed Ul Slahi, um, surfaces prominently in the documents because he was one of the most tortured people in Guantanamo. He was one of two people who were designated as special projects, quote unquote, by Donald Rumsfeld, and whose special projects treatment was meticulously documented. Um, so it was, you know, by by contact with those documents that I first learned of Mohamedou and the fact that he had actually had a manuscript that was locked away somewhere because it, too, was, you know, it, um, completely censored. Um, and then at about in about, as you said, in, in about 2012, his attorneys contacted me right about the time I was wrapping up the torture report work to say that they had managed to get um, the the manuscript, Mohamedou's manuscript declassified, although not uncensored, um, heavily redacted. And so that became then the torture, I mean, the, the Guantanamo diary. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you were talking about the, uh, the prohibition against torture, which I, I really didn't know about until, I guess, um, you're talking about the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. And I guess I was surprised that there was no exception to that. No exception, um, a threat of war, internal political instability, or other public emergency. You know, there was absolutely no uh, exception. It, it, has to, it has to be that way, because any exception would swallow the rule. You know, right. people, people who torture generally don't think don't think they're doing a bad thing. They don't believe they're bad guys. They believe that they're it's the ticking time bomb scenario that people always use. You know, we're doing this in order to save lives in order or or even in the crudest form. I'm doing this in order to preserve my power. But I, I'm doing that because my power is the power my country needs. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, so the, you, you, you know, the, any, any line drawing around this, you know, makes it absolutely unworkable. 
Um, it's an, and, you know, and it's also based on like all, you know, the, our, our international and domestic sense of human and civil rights, they're based on natural law system of belief that, you know, each individual inherently possesses uh, certain rights. That's what being human means. And among those are the, the, the right to be free from torture. That's just, everybody possesses that right. And there's no, there's no circumstances under which that right can be abridged. Um, I wonder, could you, first of all, just say what the initials for the ACLU are? American Civil Liberties Union. Yeah. So from the very beginning, were you aware of the role of the American Psychological Association? And well, from the very beginning, I wouldn't say nobody was from the very, very beginning. But as soon as, you know, 2005, I think, was when Dana Priest published an article in the Washington Post that, you know, exposed the fact that there were secret CIA prisons in Europe. Um, uh, this the uh, By 2008, with the documents that the ACLU had secured, among them were a CIA inspector general report, an internal report investigating allegations of abuse at those sites. You know, all of those reports, you know, early reports on talked about the role of two psychologists, um, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, in developing this enhanced interrogation program. And, you know, so I would say by, by 2008, which was, you know, before I started the torture report project, um, by 2008, it was well known that, you know, that there was a, a, a troubling uh, overlap between, you know, the um, uh, psychological professionals and the torture program. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, the details of that have become ever more clear through time. Um, you know, and then the, the role about the, you know, the, the larger community, mental health community in the United States and professional organizations and not censoring that, censoring, censoring that when they had the chance or not speaking out forcefully enough is a, you know, really interesting subject, a little bit out of my um, wheelhouse, but I know, you know, that I've, I've talked to many members of the associations who, you know, have, have done a lot of work to, you know, push even further for official apologies and that sort of thing. Well, I, I've been particularly interested in the American Psychological Association, even though I'm a social worker. Um, I was at one of the meetings in New York where they discussed whether uh, psychologists should be present at what they were already calling enhanced interrogations. So, and they didn't vote that down at the time. It was about right. 2007. And it's clear that the Americans, I mean, it's very important, the American Psychological Association, whose key principle is do no harm, right. really um, fostered and supported and sustained the torture policy of the Bush administration by declaring that this was not torture, but enhanced interrogation and, um, and that people were not, who were in custody were not prisoners. Right. So they were not liable to be protected. I mean, they weren't protectable. Right. They were detainees. And so um, 
Yeah, it's very, very, very disturbing. And this is written up by James Risen and Jane Mayer and a host of other people. And finally, I mean, I think this is important. Finally, the um, American Psychological Association under such uh, criticism and some of the leaders just did stand up. They hired a legal firm to, um, to investigate and the legal it's, it's called the Hoffman Report, just in case anybody is interested. It's about 528 pages and it is in the smallest print possible and it's available to the public. And it is the most boring document also because these people are not psychologists, they're lawyers. So, mm. I mean, I guess I found it very, very, very disturbing just being a mental health professional to see in a sense so few people uh, almost aware, you know, seem, uh, I mean, so many people seemed oblivious and there's one Martin Seligman who was the past president of right. the Psychological Association. Every book that documents torture says that he had a meeting in October 2001 and he had leaders of the military and leaders of the psychological community, including Bruce Jessen and James Mitchell he allegedly was going to do counterterrorism work, you know, and, but apparently he says that even though if you look up learned helplessness, which was his theory and torture, you'll see material on the web that he would never have used uh, that against people. But I, I guess I wanted just to mention that because it's a, it's, I mean, it's a hugely important, you know, I mean, you know, the, in the context of the larger conversation about reckoning with this, you know, um, how how do we find a path back that, you know, repairs the damage? Obviously, the, 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 the mental health professional community in the United States has work to do in finding, you know, finding that path back, the acknowledgments and everything, you know, but like, you know, like many other communities, I think. But um, there's a terrific new documentary film out by Alex Gibney um, called "The Forever Prisoner," which really looks, you know, um, and you know, uh, specifically at the interrogation and uh, of Abu Zubaydah, um, who was sort of the alpha um, or the beta with the test case for uh, you know Mitchell and Jessen's you know yeah. crackpot ideas. Um, has really a startling interview you know, footage with them or footage from their deposition in a really great case that the ACLU brought on behalf of three survivors or two survivors of CIA black sites and the family of a third who was actually um, killed during torture in Afghanistan. But um, yeah, the, the, you know, one of the most striking things that, about that movie, which is also in the documents, um, you know, illustrated quite clearly is that, you know, James Mitchell had you know, had language to describe what he was doing. Um, but when they did these things, it was deeply disturbing even to them. Um, you know, when when they were torturing Abu Zubaydah using the enhanced interrogation techniques, including waterboarding uh, in Thailand, and, and you know, that we now have, you know, ever more, ever less redacted, more full record of the minute by minute what was happening you know, in during that interrogation, you know, there, there, there are many references to interrogators 
breaking down and crying, feeling physically sick, several asked to be sent home to the United States. Um, you know, it, it, and Mitchell has said repeatedly that he was asking headquarters to stop and they were pushing him to keep going. They actually sent somebody from Washington. You know, Mitchell has said enough, we're not gonna waterboard him anymore. They, they didn't believe that he was not still withholding information and sent somebody from Washington uh, their head lawyer um, to to watch over yet one more waterboarding session till they too I think were you know appalled by the what what waterboarding actually means in the flesh and uh, and said okay you can stop but um, yeah I mean there's you know there the 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 difference between what people thought they were doing and you know the actual practice of it you know between the efficacy they claimed and the complete efficacy that they, you know, lack of efficacy that revealed itself, you know, by the end of Abu Zubaydah's interrogation, Mitchell and Jessen were, were not saying these EITs were effective because they got a, a bunch of new information, but in fact that they, you know, that they did, they proved that he didn't have any further information, um, which is awful when you think about it, but that's, yeah, a, you know. Can you just, um, say what waterboarding is well waterboarding is you know the, the the shorthand that people use is simulated drowning you know in 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 i've heard people say that it's you know it's simulated only to the extent that you're revived you're not allowed to, people don't allow you to drown but physically what's happening is that you are drowning you know it's just that the process doesn't doesn't go to completion but you are you know, the way it was done, you know, in the CIA's interrogation booths was that it was, you know, extremely calculated. They had a, a gurney that would tip up and down. They would lower the gurney to a horizontal position. You were strapped down. They put a cloth over your mouth and then they were pouring water into that cloth into your mouth at a prescribed rate um, until you were until you were choking until you were beginning to drown. And then they would tip you up. They would, you know, the chair, the table would tip up to a vertical position. You would cough and sputter and recover yourself. And then they'd flip you right back down and do it again. Um, and, um, you know, my understanding is that it's, you know, I mean, it's uh, it, the physical, the physical experience of the person being water, waterboarded is the experience of drowning. Um, you know, we know that Abu Zubaydah was, you know, um, uh, deeply physically traumatized by this. I mean, he was, you know, sick. He was, had to be hospitalized at one point. Lost an eye. Yeah, that was, that was earlier, but yeah. Um, but, um, you know, just the, like, just, you know, physically, um, you know, the, it's, it's, it's permanently scarring. It's clearly torture. Everybody agrees with on, on that. Um, you know, they're, they're continuing hearings in Guantanamo for, um, um, Al-Nashiri, the, the accused coal bomber, um, who was one of, you know, five people who we know, you know, got the most severe of the EITs. Um, and I think in just in proceedings this week, it, one of his um, healthcare professionals talked about the fact that he still has recurring nightmares of drowning. Um, so it's, it, it is, you know, a, a, an extremely gruesome process. So gruesome, as I say, that the people who are participating in that process um, are the ones who I think as much as anyone uh, were responsible for stopping the practice. Although 
I don't know if this remorse or, you know, this um, horror, uh, if they come in spurts, because the last I read about James Mitchell, he was at a hearing and he was very defiant. He was very aligned with the families um, of the victims of 9-11 and he was uh, defiant about doing this for them and for his country and I think I, I, that absolutely I think I think he believes that I mean he believes that to this day I, I don't think you know he there, I can't remember the exact year but there was a whole internal review of the EITs that the Bush administration did can you say what is an EIT uh, enhanced interrogation technique oh, okay. um, and that's this list of 10 techniques that Michelin Jessen yeah. developed um you know, and there was a huge review of that at some point. And, and, you know, even in Mitchell's book, his own autobiography, you know, he, he describes that they had come to the conclusion that, you know, they only needed about three of them that were really effective. That included walling, you know, pounding somebody off the wall, also deeply traumatizing physically. Um, but that, you know, that they, that waterboarding was not on that list. So, you know, I think, you know, he would, I think, he, I, I don't put words into his mouth, I cannot begin to imagine, you know, the internal life of James Mitchell, but um, I, I think, I think he would, you know, he, he, you can have both of those things, right? Well, we were doing the best we could, we're, you know, we thought this worked, we, we were learning, but we, the reason we were doing this was a noble cause. And, you know, again, we're back to the beginning of the conversation. You know, the Convention Against Torture says no noble cause is an excuse for torture. So, you know, um, if, you know, if we had had that bright line and that bright line was, you know, uh, established and held by the top levels of the Bush administration, you know, James Mitchell would not have been, you know, in a position where he was sitting down at a typewriter and inventing crazy ideas that became well, the EAPs. I mean... I, I hesitate because, you know, what, what they called this was learned helplessness and, and the, the, um, it was based apparently on the work of Seligman who, who did torture on dogs. And the idea was that you tortured a dog to the point that the dog felt no option of escape, even if the door was open. Right dog would not take the opportunity. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, that was, I mean, you know, Mitchell and Jessen, and I think on up throughout the Bush administration, you know, had this notion that, you know, that, that yeah, it was, they, they were learned helplessness was the response to a problem that they had identified as resistance, right? That, you know, that they had this kind of ill-conceived notion that al-Qaeda members were kind of super resistors, had been trained in the most sophisticated, you know, interrogation resistance techniques. So they had to break down that wall. It's nonsense. You know, first of all, there was no such formal training. Um, uh, you know, that, 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 that they're as susceptible as anybody to, you know, both to, you know, uh, rapport building, you know, positive, effective interrogation techniques and as you know, susceptible to the tremendous harms of torture, and as everyone else, including the you know harm, the efficacy harm of false confessions, you know, which yeah. is the, the, the inevitable byproduct of torture. Torture does not give you 
good information. Um, so yeah, but they, you know, they 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 had this misguided notion that they had to break down, break people, in order break their resistance. And you know, the cables from Thailand uh, describing Abu Zubaydah's torture illustrate in the most shocking way the way in which they enacted that on a specific person. So to the point that they would just sort of point to a confinement box, these small boxes that- Like you know, a coffin. Yes, yes, one even smaller. One was coffin size, that was a large confinement box. There was a smaller one, which is basically would be the size of you in a fetal position. But they would, you know, they would point to the box and this would describe Abu Zubaydah crawling across the room and getting into the box himself, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah and that, that, that was what they were doing. Um, and you know, they were, they, but, but at the, the, the effect was, you know, um, not at all what they, you know, claimed it was in terms of getting useful information, even if they had gotten useful information, it doesn't matter because it still is clearly a violation of human dignity and international law. So, well, from what I read here that, um, his interrogators pushed him so hard, including sleep deprivation and physical abuse that at one point they were scared he might die. And- Yeah, he was, uh, rushed, he was rushed to a hospital. Yeah. And they, let's see. And, and they uh, sent a cable that if he died, he should be cremated immediately and that they actually said that if he survived the experience, they should be protected from incriminations and he should remain in isolation and in, incommunicado. So that- that's, he, Yeah, that's, and that, that's the second part of this censorship regime, right? And that, you know, that, that, I mean, Alex Gibney's film is titled The Forever Prisoner, exactly on that quote, right? That, you know, he, we would have to hold him, he would have to be held incommunicado forever because otherwise yeah. he will tell this unbelievably damning story of criminal misbehavior. Um, I mean, you know, and, 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 and this is, you know, you can look at this as the story of Guantanamo um, as well. So Guantanamo, you know, um, you know, opens in January of 2002, it's pretty full by August of 2002, um, at which point in August of 2002, you know, there's all these elaborate, these extravagant claims about all of the high level terrorists that we've got in Guantanamo, but the CIA does an internal audit where they send a, an analyst, um, a, a, an Arabic speaking analyst into Guantanamo to just figure out who they've got there. He does an internal report in August of 2002 that says the vast majority of these people, we have no business holding them. You wow. know, they're, they're farmers, they're, you know, people, they were militia people in Afghanistan. You know, there's been ongoing conflict forever. Um, none of the, you know, they, they had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks that were, you know, or, or organizations that were planning hostilities against the United States. There were different Mujahideen factions that were fighting in Afghanistan. Some of them were just totally wrong person, wrong time, complete mistaken identity, you know. But um, instead of you know rethinking that strategy, Rumsfeld and you know decided that the Defense Department. They were hearing all these great claims of success that are coming from the CIA and Mitchell and Jessen's program. 
So Rumsfeld decides we're going to do the same thing, starts their own sort of special interrogation program, you know, which culminates in these, you know, um, in the torture first of Mohammed al-Khatani and then in, in January of 2003, and then Mohamedou in the, in the, you know, fall and winter of 2003, you know, but let me, we could say, we could say that, you know, okay, well, they were wrongheaded about who they thought Mohammedou was, but by, by 2004, 2005, they knew perfectly well that they had the wrong map, you know. Can I just read something about him? Sure. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay, there was, um, this is a page 322 of the torture report. Um, you describe a memo by General Miller shortly after another memo by Donald Rumsfeld, seeming to almost negate the actual usage of the torture program. Um, it discusses the intention of treatment torture of Mohamedou Old Slahi. Um, and I'm quoting you. Slahi was to face 20 hour interrogations during which interrogators would douse him with water to keep him awake and enforce control. Military dogs would be used to agitate the detainee and provide shock value. He would wear signs saying liar, coward, and dog, and be forced to perform dog tricks to reduce the detainee's ego. He would be forcibly shaved, strip searched, and made to wear a burqa. He would be refused opportunities to pray, and interrogators would exploit religious taboos like close contact with female interrogators to raise his stress levels. Moreover, because Slahi believes music is forbidden, his interrogation booth and a bare white room designed to reduce outside stimuli and present an austere environment. It would then be flooded with loud music and lurid red lighting. At other times, a strobe light would be used to disorient him and add to his stress level. So I guess it's a little overwhelming even to read. It's, um, I mean, it is, it is remarkable. I mean, it, it's remarkable to understand how premeditated these things were. Um, I think it's one of the great mysteries to me in my human rights career. It was a great mystery, but I, I, this experience answered that riddle for me. But, you know, over the past latter half of the 20th century, um, as countries around the world um, have experienced, you know, uh, a movement from authoritarian regimes to some kind of freedom, you know, and have really dealt with this question of accountability, reckoning with torture and other human rights abuses, Time and time again, this happened in Argentina, it happened in Brazil, it's happened in, you know, in East Germany. Um, uh, when there's these, you know, when the, the oppressive regime falls, it's uh, warehouses full of documents are discovered that are their torture records. And it was, for me, a confounding mystery why, why people kept such meticulous records of such horrible things. Um, 
it became clear, you know, as I was working on this and, and, you know, sort of looking at this documentary record, that this is really, this is a, a record, it's, it's, there's two parts to it. Most of the documentary record we have about torture in these places is because there were internal whistleblowers. You know, so these are, you know, the records are inter the, the internal investigations that were done. The description that you just read, for example, of Mohammedu's interrogation plan, which was modified slightly from the time that, that original version, but was signed personally by uh, Rumsfeld, you know, that was, you know, that was exposed in this remarkable 2008 report by the Senate Armed Services Committee, essential, essential report on, um, uh, on torture in Guantanamo, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And then there was an FBI internal report where they were, the FBI was so uh, riven by, you know, by uh, anguish over what was happening in the sites and whether or not FBI agents should be allowed to participate in it. Um, and so we have this record. So on the one hand, there's, you know, all of the, you know, these are just people who filed complaints and, you know, the inspectors general followed up on those complaints. And, and so we have these, they, these documents were all internal, but then the other ones, like why did Mitchell and Jessen, why did Mitchell, James Mitchell, after every, for however many days Abu Zubaydah was tortured, at the end of every day, did they sit down and type out and send back to headquarters, you know, minute by minute, literally blow by blow descriptions of what they were doing to Abu Zubaydah. You know, well, it, it became, it becomes clear that this is ass covering, right? By putting it on the record, you're, you're establishing that you're reporting it up the chain of command. Um, you're not going rogue. You're not a bad apple, you know? So, so that, you know, so that the torturers, I think, tend to do this because it, it, it in some ways it, it feels like, you know, it feels like you're, it establishes a chain of command that you're in. And yes, the CIA lawyers said this is legal. So I'm doing it because it's, because they said it's legal and I'm reporting it. So you're not stopping me. So therefore you must agree that it's legal. And, you know, in fact, we know that the headquarters was actually pressuring Mitchell to push even harder. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's, it, it, it is a strange phenomenon, but we, you know, we do have this, you know, this incredible um, trove of documents, but even that continues to be obscenely censored. You know, the, yeah. the, the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, re released its report in 2014, all right, I believe, um, uh, on, on CIA torture. And the only, to this day, we've only seen the executive summary there are five more volumes of the details that go into that ex executive summary that apparently nobody's ever going to get to read. Um, oh. Shocking. And, you know, and just one more point, sorry. Um, you know, in order to do this, you know, to continue to perpetuate these, this censorship required holding, like we said, Abu, Abu Zubaydah and Muhammadu Hulslahi and a number of people essentially you know, try to hold them forever. For Mohammedu, they held them for 10, at least 10 years beyond any any the time that anybody could reasonably have said that he was who they had said he was, he was who they believed he was. Yeah. And they did that simply because Mohammedu is a tremendous communicator. And they knew that when he was released, his story would be internationally known. Yeah. 
Well, you know, as I was looking over the notes for today, I, I, um, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but, you know, as a Jew coming up, hearing about the Holocaust, um, it was, and, you know, seeing so many movies, it was, it was like, they were terrible and we would never do anything like that. And, and then I, I picked up a book by Carl Jung who said, that the Holocaust was uh, a logical uh, situation that came from the atrocities between Europeans and Europeans and then came from colonialism and slavery and genocide. And it was like, holy, mm, like, and so I have kind of bought into this, his theory of the shadow that we're all capable of good and bad, all kinds of good and bad, and that if we don't, get to know that we can dehumanize, you know, we can project all our, our terrible part, you know, our terrible parts onto other people. And once that happens, we can be um, elected as special enough to do whatever we want to them. And so there's a terrible, I think, illness in this country of not being able to own whether it's systemic racism, whether it's torture, whether and and to apologize, you know, to say we are not always the good guys, and you know, to get anywhere, we have to kind of know that, and to get really further, we have to kind of know that we're capable of all kinds of things. So that, for instance, I've read a bunch of um, information about what what the torture program has done to our reputation in the world and how it's fomented and exaggerated, informed ISIS. And, you know, once you humiliate people at their core, and I think um, from what I've read, you know, the humiliation of dogs um, around, the humiliation of being peed on, the humiliation of women being um, just trying to seduce, you know, just, I want to fuck you, you know, just like, it's so humiliating and that what people really feel humiliated, aside from just any kind of torture, right? they, they yeah, feel I mean, and, by, and by the way, speaking of wrongheaded ideas, those things in particular, dogs and sexual molestation by female officers, um, you know, that was the product of another absolutely harebrained, you know, frankly racist conception that, you know, Muslim men for some reason are particularly vulnerable to those things. You know, I mean, sexual assault is traumatizing for anyone, you know, fear of attack dogs is, pretty universal, you know? So, but there was, there was some notion that these were, you know, part of how you break down again, this kind of particular kind of person, um, you know, but it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was, you know, these are just things that like you say are deeply humiliating to everyone. Um, they're, they're violations of human dignity in the most direct and straightforward way. And, um, and they're clearly prohibited by, by international law. You know, in, in terms of you're talking about the forever prisoner. I just wanted to mention, because I think, you know, the idea of torture is so abominable, you know, to me, and I, th I think to many, 
But the idea of the PTSD, I think, you know, doesn't always come through. So I just wanted to mention from an article by James Risen. Um, yeah, um, he wrote this in 2016 and it was called After Torture, Ex-Detainee is Still Captive of the Darkness. And he writes, the United States subjected Suleiman Abdullah Salim to harsh tactics in a secret prison and held him without charge for years. He was found not to be a terrorist threat, but he pays a deep price to this day. Suleiman Abdullah Salim endured beatings, sleep deprivation, waterboarding, and other severe measures. It has been 13 years since he was tortured in a secret prison in Afghanistan run by the CIA, a place he calls the darkness. It has been eight years since he was released. No charges, no explanations back into the world. Even after so much time, Mr. Salim, 45, is struggling to move on, suffering from depression and post-traumatic stress. According to a medical assessment, he is withdrawn and wary. He cannot talk about his experiences with his wife, who he says worries that the Americans will come back to snatch him. He is fearful of drawing too much attention at home in Stonetown in Zanzibar, Tanzania, concerned that his neighbors will think he is an American spy. When he speaks not in his native Swahili, but in English that he has, he has, lear he has learned from the jailers, Mr. Salim nearly whispers. Many times now, I feel I have something heavy inside my body, he said in an interview. Sometimes I walk and I walk and I forget. I forget everything. I forget prison, the darkness, everything, but it is always there. The darkness comes. He was one of 39 men subjected to some of the CIA's most brutal techniques, beatings, hanging in chains, sleep deprivation and water dousing, which creates a sensation of drowning, even though interrogators had been denied permission to use that last tactic on him, according to Senate Intelligence Committee investigators into the agency's classified interrogation program. In a series of recent interviews in Dubai, Mr. Salim described his incarceration by the CIA and the United States military as a terrorist suspect. His account closely parallels those provided by other detainees, witnesses, and court documents. Today, back in Stonetown, Mr. Salim is trying to support his family, though some of his attempts at jobs has, have not worked out. He now breeds pigeons, raising them for a local market. They are both his livelihood and his solace. And it's like, as I'm reading that, I'm getting the chills because I think yeah. some of the human aspect is after. Well, this, you know, it, it's, that's, it, that, that case, that man, it, it's such an important and compelling illustration of the thing that you were talking about a little while ago about our almost adolescent inability to um, repair the damage that we do. Um, 
Suleiman Salim was one of the three plaintiffs in that ACLU lawsuit I mentioned against Mitchell oh. and Jessen. Um, and I, I wrote a piece for the nation that described this absolutely shameful process during that um, that lawsuit where, you know, you, you, you presumably have your ability to sue in court for damages, um, damages which are required under the Convention Against Torture to be awarded to people who have been tortured. Um, you know, normally this would mean that you could, you would be, you know, give a deposition, you know, come to the United States, give your deposition, um, and then come and be in the courtroom to meet to, you know, to come face to face with the torturer uh, in front of a jury, you know, that sort of drama of, um, of communal truth telling and recognition, right? When, when it came time for Suleiman to give his deposition, he was not allowed to come to the United States. His, wow. his, attorneys, his attorneys had to depose him on a Caribbean, in a Caribbean island um, after this long process of, you know, um, of trying to work out where and how they could do these depositions outside of the United States. But to this day, no one who was held in Guantanamo or in a CIA black site has been allowed to come to the United States. When Mohamedou was still in prison, his brother Yadi, who lives in Germany, um, who has never even the, had the shadow of suspicion over him, beautiful, lovely, gentle, kind young man, um, was invited to come to the United States by Amnesty International and some other organizations to speak on his brother's behalf. Yadi, I went to pick him up at JFK and was stopped at the at, uh, at, at wow. immigration and put on a flight back to Germany. Wow. So this is you know, we're talking about you know the kind of censorship and that that censorship has involved the systematic extinguishing of the voices of. Um, those we tortured and of the and of their families and a deliberate ongoing attempt to keep them out of the arena of public discourse in the United States you know and and um you know it, it, not knowing these things i would look at the conversation that's going on now about critical race theory and shake my head in total bewilderment you know but in fact it's the same thing critical race theory is essentially a conversation. It's 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 a century essentially a conversation about um, acknowledging and repairing damage. You know, right. how do we acknowledge our historical wrongs? How do we weave a a, a a more durable and fair and and equitable blanket that warms us all? Um, you know, and the responses of, of of many in the country is to actually prohibit that conversation, to pass right. laws prohibiting people from having that conversation in public schools. I mean, that the, you know, the idea that, you know, we are so deeply are guilt-ridden um, about what we're what we've done, that we're just structurally incapable of having conversations that can rescue us. Yeah you know, from our yeah. own shame and guilt. Um, it's just one of the, it, it's it's probably the defining pathology of this moment. Right, I, I agree. So, um, and that we're so brittle. So it's interesting because, you know, many people on the right call many people on the left snowflakes, you know, hypersensitive, hyper this, hyper that, but 
the, um, you know, this, I, I actually write this in my book because it struck me as so bizarre, but in terms of what we're talking about, it's not so bizarre. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of commonplace. I was reading about Putin and how he had spoken with the heads of education to, um, to get them to teach the more positive aspects of Stalin, who I don't know, 20 million, 30 million people he was uh, accused of executing, having executed. So, but the idea was to teach more about his rescuing allied forces in World War II and to make him more of a hero because he wanted the students to have better self-esteem. So really what it's also about is to get better self-esteem. Don't learn the truth and don't help our children really be able to get the tools to digest some of the sadness and remorse and regret and the good parts of guilt. I mean, certainly those of us who were Jewish, let me just say that, have wanted German people to do that work. And so, but here it's very, very hard to embrace it because we think that we're so strong, but really the idea of exceptionalism is such a kind of brittle one. It is, I mean, it's, it's so true. And I think, you know, um, you know, we're, we're at best bullies. Our strength is bully strength at a lot, in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the, uh, uh, our country is such an enormously power and powerful and influential country around the world, to even today, even in spite of these shameful episodes. But that's largely, you know, that's largely in a, the, the positive power that we exhibit is what, you know, they would call soft power, which is our cultural you know, influence over the world, um, our entertainment, our create technology, create our creative products and everything. Um, but the, but the other side, I mean, I, I keep thinking, and I know this is simplistic and I don't have a, you know, psychology background, but, you know, I, I do think of the analogy of, you know, the, the, the lesson, the, the classic lesson that you learn when you throw a ball through the neighbor's window, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, the good, parenting is, you know, taking your child and walking them over to the neighbor's house to ring the doorbell to say, I'm sorry, I threw a ball through your window, right? right? And, you know, anybody who's had an experience like that, and I had many when I was a child, you know, um, you know, you know that as long as you're running, as long as you're running away from that, you're weak. You're afraid of being caught. You become secretive. You become anxious. You know, as soon as you ring that doorbell and say that, an enormous weight is lifted. You're, you know, you gain strength. You're, you know, you're seen as somebody who's courageous enough to admit a mistake. The world is just desperate for an America that's that's courageous enough and mature enough to commit its mistakes because all other countries have committed a ton of mistakes too. You know. And, you know, so it's not, you know, the exceptionalism thing is, you know, forget it. Every, you know, all countries go astray, you know, but what they what what the world would wish for from the United States is a country that can model, you know, 
uh, a durable version of democracy and a durable version of democracy requires um, accountability. It just, that, that's yeah. a simple fact. It's a little like the conversation around toxic masculinity, you know, the idea being that um, a really strong man is a man who can accept his weakness. But right. can I bring you back to Muhammadu? Because I sure. think uh, even though I say, like, I don't think he should be the poster child because he was so resilient, he has so many strengths, but he is like a therapeutic image and being in a way for this country because you cannot help see him and see him say that his religion helped him through, that because of his background, he believes in the power of love, that he's willing to have everybody come to his table, no matter what they did and speak about it. I'm getting chills again. So, and I, you know, many people have not heard of the movie, The Mauritanian. And I'm not saying it's the best movie I've ever seen, but I think it's, kind of spectacular in that it should be seen. It should be kind of required. And I remember saying to him that I didn't really like the title because I, I didn't really understand it. And he said he liked the title because he wanted people to find out about his country, Mauritania. But um, can, I think there is also nothing quite like seeing some of the images. And one of the things I say to people aside from the fact that I'll pay them to see the movie or I'll pay the Amazon fee, if it's still a fee, um, is that uh, it's just, you know, first of all, I assure people that it's not, it's, it is not a thriller in that it does not submit the audience to endless views of torture. I think it's just enough for you to get a sense that this was real. And so can you say anything about the movie aside from everybody see it, please? I mean, I think it's a, it, it's very powerfully done. Um, you know, this is based on the Guantanamo diary, um, Muhammad's book, and he was very active in, you know, I, I actually got to see them filming the, the scenes that were shot at his mother's house. Um, wow. the, the heartbreaking scene where he says goodbye to his mother, um, before he's disappeared and spirited off to Jordan for the first round of CIA orchestrated interrogations, which is the last time he saw his mother because she died in prison when he was in Guantanamo and they were very close. But I, yeah, so I mean, I, I I can't say anything other than see it. I think it's an incre incredibly important, um, you know, uh, account that, you know, does by, inf by inference rather than, you know, explicit, um, uh, you know, um, uh, depictions really does on a visceral level communicate the intensity of the emotional and physical trauma that we subjected him and others to. I want to talk for a second, though. You mentioned, um, you know, Mohammed is inviting people to tea and his forgiveness, you know. I mean, the first thing he said, you know, and I think it might be in the clip at the end of the film, but, you know, when he, he gave a press conference, when he first press conference when he was back in Mauritania and he's, he said that he's forgiven everybody that's done this, you know, and, and, um, you know, I, I saw him three weeks later, I was able to, you know, get there three weeks after he was out we spent time together. And I, you know, I was sort of like, eh, really, you really, 
that was very clever, you know, very clever, uh, you know, nice PR, really good. I see what you're doing there. Um, but really, have you forgiven us? And he said, sure, absolutely, 100%, you know. But he went on to explain that, you know, and, and I've, you know, and this is a really important point. His forgiveness is part of his self-liberation. You know, he forgives us in order to remove himself from the oppression of our refusal to, you know, to take responsibility for what we do. You know, he would be he would be imprisoned to us for the rest of his life if he's waiting for us to apologize to him, to make reparations. Um, I'm sorry. Keep going. yeah, and and so you know, but but when he forgives us, that's his. That, he steps out of that cycle, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm I've forgiven them. I'm done with them. You know, I wish them the best. You know, but it doesn't let us off the hook. No, absolutely. You know, because the, the next round of forgiveness is us forgiving ourselves. Absolutely. And we can we can only forgive ourselves by, you know, an open, frank accountability process. That includes, you know, being very, very honest about not only about who did what, who ordered what, who turned a blind eye to what, but also what we as the American people, you know, um, signaled and didn't signal in terms of support for all of this. I mean, George Bush very famously called the 2004 presidential election, his re-election, he called that his accountability moment. We already had the Abu Ghraib photographs. You know, we had we had reports of what was going on in the CIA black sites. You know, we knew what we knew. And he was elected president uh, again. And so, you know, there was there there was certainly and you will hear Dick Cheney, you'll hear Bruce Jessen or James Mitchell, Mitchell especially say, you know, we were doing the things that you wanted us to do, you know, and we need, you know, a real accountability process is one that, you know, society wide talks about how afraid we were, how angry we were, what we, what we you know, thought that entitled us to be able to do, how Islamophobic we were. Yep, um, and, and are. All of these things, and are. And, um, and so that's, you know, so Mohammed's forgiveness is real, it's genuine, it's profound, it's glorious, it's awe-inspiring, but that only takes care of his side of it, for him. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> doesn't do anything for us. Absolutely. But, you know, I think I'm thinking of TikTok. I, I have a, a therapy client who keeps sending me TikToks. On, <laughs> and I think of that saying, I mean, I don't think you're going on TikTok anytime soon. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, that idea of forgiving as a way of getting out of the cycle of violence and getting is so important to many people even an individual. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But I I do want to say, and I really had no intention of giving any PR to anything, but I I do want to recommend the Guantanamo Diary because again, it's it's actually a beautiful read in the sense that it does not hit you over the head. And because of Mohamedou's um, clarity and because of his humor. I mean, it's, it's, he's wry and, uh, and because of your editing, it, it really comes through as a benign um, 
it's provocative. There's no doubt about it, but you don't feel tortured. And I think this is very important that these things in the media, like the film, The Mauritanian and Guantanamo Diary are not elements of torture. They are not as assaultive as we have been. And they don't express the violence of the torture in the same way. So I think I think people need to know, and I think as a Jew, and I'm really not religious except, you know, who knows what's in my unconscious. I think about the holiday of Yom Kippur, which is next year, but I think in terms of atoning and apology, we, I think, we need to make ourselves, you know, larger and not just think of, have I sinned against another Jew? As, as part of humanity, um, what am I committing and what am I part of? And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's Christmas and um, I think, you know, sometimes I think, well, what would Jesus do? He would just, he would, he, he, he would do, you know, again, I'm Jewish, so I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm so assuming because it was a long time ago, but that, you know, the spirit maybe of this holiday is not just peace on earth and presence, but really doing our job, you know, to make for something peaceful and doing our job. And, you know, part of that, is asking forgiveness, but not just asking forgiveness in a, in a mechanical way, but doing the work. And so I think we're good. Anything you want to add? No, that's, I mean, I just, you know, amen. I mean, to that, I mean, I, you know, it's, um, it's really true. I think, you know, we, we're, we're in a bad spot. You know, we're so deeply divided, you know, but but I, I think, you know, um, we we need to rebuild communities. We need to rebuild, you know, our, our sense of human dignity and shared human dignity and shared human purpose. And um, and this is an avenue, you know, yeah. this is a really, really important avenue. I mean, the people who are so afraid of these discussions, you know, it's 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 a misguided fear because it's not. You know, and I think it's based on a, you know, on a kind of deeply embedded narrative of scarcity, you know, where there's just, you know, if, 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 if my group loses a little bit of advantage, you know, if, if somebody else gets, a, if, if somebody else gets more advantages or gets a more equal shot, it's going to diminish my, my stature and my possibilities. And that's not how it works. That is not how it works. Right. You know, if, if we're, you know, a, a system that's based on, you know, on, on marginalizing and oppressing um, people, you know, is one that, 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 that creates deep divides as we see and, and um, you know, and real, real harms, the traumas that, you know, uh, are, that, that, that this country has been in, historically inflicted um, live on. They live on, you know, I, I, it's, and, you know, we don't, we don't have to, it's true that we were not slaveholders, you know, um, but, but that, you know, that, that, the, the ways in which slavery shaped all of our institutions, we have to acknowledge that we have to think about, you know, what can we do today um, that, that uh, addresses 
you know, that those deeply ingrained uh, injustices and inequalities, you know, and, and, and doing that is going to make us, you know, wealthier in every sense. Well, you know, the ironic thing is that with the exceptionalism comes a lack of empathy and with the lack of empathy comes a lack of vulnerability. And then what, what happens is that we can't feel vulnerable to climate change. So you have so many people either feeding into it actively or not caring about it or denying it. So it's like, are we going to be vulnerable and, you know, for real with all the mess that that entails, not as a show business kind of thing, but in a very real way and help each other and get the help we need. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and, and there's so many, you know, there's so many positive lessons out there in how the outcomes of this are only good. You know, and I'll just uh, here's I'll, I'll I'll end with this story, which is, you know, when Mohammedu was still in prison, and you know the book had come out when he was still in Guantanamo, and I would do you know talks, book talks, and things. But during the Q and A, there was always a question from the audience about you know they would say, well, okay, uh, I'm I'm beginning to be coming around to the view that. Mohamedou was mistakenly imprisoned and should never have been tortured, you know, but what if he gets out now, you know, he must be so angry, you know, I mean, it just like, it wouldn't, it won't, won't he be dangerous if he's released now? And it was like, you know, you mentioned empathy, empathy, which is what made me think of it. It was like, I always loved getting that question, you know, because it begins in a kind of empathy, Right. It begins by saying, wow, this was the magnitude of this justice, injustice, this suffering. I would be so furious. I would be angry. I would want revenge and all of these things. Um, so it, it starts, there's a sort of recognition of what the human cost would be of these things. But it ignores the fact that we have, unfortunately, you know, vast experience of people who have been wrongfully incorpor- uh, incarcerated and have been released. And that experience teaches us that almost uniformly, when people who are released after an unjust imprisonment, you know, they are grateful to be released. They are forgiving. They want to get on with their lives. Um, they are by no means a danger to society. Um, that that it is never, never weakening or a mistake to fix a wrong. Um, and uh, and so you know it, it, why we're afraid of that? It's just this kind of shadowy guilt that we carry with us, that you know that that you know we deserve to be punished for what we've done. But that's not you know that, that and if that's what's keeping us from doing the right thing, that's adolescent. That's frankly adolescent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not just guilt. I think it's a shame factor because. Mm-hmm. We, we are in a country that's kind of puritanical. I mean, a lot of the religions in this country are very punitive. And so, you know, the idea is that if you're good, you're good and Santa will come. And if you're bad, people are watching and you're gonna burn, right. man. Right. So the idea of, um, you know, it's a human frailty and admitting sadism, I mean, it's painful. I mean, that's why I really want there to be a platform for people who have had moral injury, who have tortured, because I don't think, I don't think we're, um, 
even willing to listen to them. And we need to listen to them because we need to know what happens to people under certain circumstances and how their sadism just comes out and is very dangerous. In some cases, it's not sadism. I mean, it's just, you know, it's simply people who are ordered to do things, you know. Um, All right. So it's attachment. Yeah. And detachment. But, you know, but yeah, you're absolutely right about hearing those voices, too, because they carry trauma. Yeah. Uh, You know, and that trauma, I mean, that trauma is so deeply and widely distributed through U.S. society. And, you know, just the really good example is, you know, our national conversation about the Iraq war, you know, you know, where where when, you know, it is now that I think 80 percent of American people agree that the Iraq war was a mistake. You know, uh, Donald Trump was elected president. And when he when he was campaigning the first time, you know, he he was, you know, denouncing the Iraq war and he said it, he said it was a mistake at the time. He's absolutely consistent about that. Um, you know, but we have not had the conversation about the awfulness that comes with that statement. Right. right? The incredible human cost right. that that inflicted the, you know, how, it, how um, cataclysmically disruptive it was for that country and that region, you know, and, and we need, we need to do that. But now we're just walking around, as you say, with shame, right. You know, a knowledge that that was wrong and bad, you know, but that quickly translates into fear. And Trump was a master at sort of making that switch, you know, um, he would cite these, you know, um, errors, but, you know, then invoke the, you know, the menace that's out there, you know, coming for us, you know, and he loved torture. I mean, he was fine with torture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so, you know, it's a, it's a very twisted thing, but it, it is remarkable for somebody who's my age to have grown up through the Vietnam anti-war movement when I was a child, you know, to know that, you know, a country that went through that process that was so wrenching, you know, didn't learn enough from that process to be able to have a better conversation about the equally catastrophic Iraq war. Um, You know, something that we like with, as with Vietnam at the end, you know, almost all of us agree was a horrible, horrible horrible, unjustified use of violence. Um, you know, that's, um, that's, that's some serious work that we've got to do. Yeah, serious. Well, I just really want to thank you. This is um, Larry Seams. I thank you for all your work and, and I thank you for um, Guantanamo Diary where I, got interested in meeting you. And please say hello and thank you to Mohamedou because uh, I think he he has helped my own humanity and I think he stands to help that of many all over and especially in this country. Uh, same with me, absolutely. Thank you so much, this has been really, really interesting. Okay.